Great. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm going to ch channel Michael Lerner, since he can't be here today, and Susan is also away, to begin by asking, uh, how many of you for whom this is the first time uh, at the New School, Commonwealth? Oh, great. Some good numbers. So uh, let me say just a little bit about Commonweal and what we do. Uh, Commonweal is a, an organization that uh, acts as an umbrella for about 12 or 15 different programs dealing with health and the environment. Uh, we have an oceanography program, uh, um, juvenile justice program, a very uh, well-renowned cancer health program, uh, biotoxin monitoring in the environment, all sorts of things. Uh, and they're all kind of uh, surrounded about the idea of healing, uh, healing ourselves and healing the planet. Uh, I've come aboard on uh, the board of Commonweal, and part of my uh, agenda has been to uh, increase a profile of the arts here. Can everybody hear? Yeah. Great. Um, I'd like to introduce Kira Epstein, who is the director of the New School program here. And uh, as we often do at the end of these things, uh, we pass a hat to make contributions which help us keep these programs free. So um, I'd like to ask you all first to turn off any cell phones. Since this is being recorded, I guess the waves in the phone somehow impact upon the recording. Um, and I'd also like to uh, mention our other co-sponsor for today is Point Reyes Books. Uh, which does so much in West Marin to promote literary and cultural programming. Uh, Steve and Kate are, are not here today, but um, as you can imagine, this is a busy time for a bookstore, hopefully. <laughs> but I just thought I might say something that they might not have mentioned themselves here. But they are beginning a program uh, which is analogous to what farmers have done with uh, the community-supported agriculture. And they're creating a program called Community-Supported Bookstores, in which they ask you to make a donation of you know, $100, $200, $300. That is a credit for you at the bookstore to use at any time, but it gives them a source of income up front so that uh, it helps kind of with their cash flow. Uh, so I want to encourage you to do that. There will uh, be books, um, some books of Bishop's poems the bookstore has provided uh, for sale that will be available afterwards. Okay. Um, and I think we're ready to go. Thanks all for coming. I'd also like to introduce Melissa Smith, who will be reading. Melissa is a graduate of uh, the Yale School of Drama and uh, is currently, and for many years, has been the director of conservatory training at ACT in San Francisco. So welcome, Melissa. Thanks. Elizabeth Bishop, in whom modesty was elevated to a nearly ethical force, died in 1979. At the end of her life, she chose to ordain a body of work as her poetical legacy that consisted of 97 poems. 97 poems written over 40 years, 97 poems that filled four thin volumes of poetry published once a, a decade between 1946 and 1976. In one of her last poems, simply entitled Poem, 
she mused on what life had offered, about what she called the size of our abidance. The little that we get for free, the little of our earthly trust, not much. Stan Bishop's complete poems alongside those of her friends Robert Lowell or Marianne Moore, or the collected works of Yeats or Auden or nearly anyone in the pantheon of 20th century poets, and her volume will be well dwarfed. Emily Dickinson, for whom modesty was also a personal ethos, wrote over 1,700 poems. Keats, who was only 25 when he died and had been writing poems for only six years, left behind a far larger body of work. 97 poems. Not very much, indeed. Manners. My grandfather said to me as we sat on the wagon seat, be sure to remember to always speak to everyone you meet. We met a stranger on foot. My grandfather's whip tapped his hat. Good day, sir. Good day. A fine day. And I said it and bowed where I sat. Then we overtook a boy we knew with his big pet crow on his shoulder. Always offer everyone a ride. Don't forget that when you get older, my grandfather said. So Willie climbed up with us, but the crow gave a caw and flew off. I was worried. How would he know where to go? But he flew a little way at a time from fence post to fence post ahead. And when Willie whistled, he answered. A fine bird, my grandfather said. And he's well brought up. See, he answers nicely when he's spoken to. Man or beast, that's good manners. Be sure that you both always do. When automobiles went by, the dust hid the people's faces, but we shouted, good day, good day, fine day, at the top of our voices. When we came to Hustler Hill, he said that the mayor was tired, so we all got down and walked, as our good manners required. Delightful, right? Simple, earnest, witty. Bishop's modesty stems from the kind of upbringing suggested in this lesson passed from grandfather to granddaughter. Her forebears were simple country folk whose generous natures and practical values she admired and emulated. Modesty for Bishop comes from a deeply rooted longing not to impose, to feel safe within the confines of right thinking behavior. She always thought of herself as a country mouse. While at first manners appears to be a simple exercise in nostalgia, it also offers an acknowledgement of the more complex reality behind human interactions. And in this way, its message is quietly subversive. The poem's penultimate stanza presents a brief retrenchment from the narrator's eager credulity. When automobiles went by, the dust hid the people's faces. But we shouted, good day, good day, fine day, at the top of our voices. Sitting perched on an old-fashioned wagon seat, polite and obliging, one may have the finest manners. But, Bishop suggests, in the modern world, all you get for it is a cloud of dust blown in your eyes. Unlike the well-brought-up crow who answers nicely when he's spoken to, the automobile flies rudely past, leaving the slow-moving country folk unable to connect with their fellow travelers, temporarily blinded. The poem called Manners is about both good manners, always speak to everyone you meet, and not so much bad manners as no manners. 
the poem expresses appreciation for time-worn social niceties. At the same time, it recognizes their imminent demise. The days when fine manners mattered are numbered, soon to be as obsolete as the horse and buggy itself. Once you crack open Bishop's com complete poems, you'll find there is nothing modest about the solid achievement within. When she died, Bishop's friend and fellow poet James Merrill claimed that there was no artifice about Elizabeth Bishop or her work, none at all, with the possible significant exception of her instinctive, modest, lifelong impersonation of an ordinary woman. There's nothing self-effacing about her search for clarity of expression, about her struggle for form. Indeed, there is a widely immodest strength of purpose in her aggressive demand to achieve a standard for herself. There are deep conflicts within Bishop's modesty. She sustained a tightly reined-in sense of hubris, in sharp contrast to her eternal doubts. She was fully aware of her considerable talent and her unusual gift. To begin to understand Elizabeth Bishop, you must know that her life was shaped irrevocably, traumatically, by the time she was five years old. <coughs> Bishop was born on February 8th, 100 years ago, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Her parents, William Bishop and Gertrude Boomer Bishop, had been married only three years when, at the age of 39, Bishop's father died suddenly of Bright's disease, a form of kidney failure. Bishop was eight months old. Her mother suffered mentally from this shock and collapsed in a series of increasingly debilitating breakdowns over the coming years. After a brief hospitalization at a sanatorium outside of Boston, mother and child left Worcester to return to Gertrude Boomer's family home in Nova Scotia, in the tiny village called Great Village. Here, Bishop was raised by her maternal grandparents and her mother's sisters. When Bishop turned five in 1916, her mother had a decisive breakdown and was committed to an asylum. She never saw her mother again. Poet Seamus Heaney wrote, Elizabeth Bishop's supreme gift was to be able to ingest loss and to transmute it. Great Village was a small place with intimate, unthreatening spaces for a child to grow, familiar and welcoming. There was neither plumbing nor electricity in the town. An active blacksmith shop occupied the shed next to her grandparents' house. But Bishop, happy and much loved in her grandmother and grandfather's home, was in for yet another upheaval. One day, within a year of her mother's institutionalization, her father's family arrived, appearing in Great Village in their chauffeur-driven car, laying their claim upon her. Boasting of greater resources, they took the young girl back with them to live a more privileged life in Worcester, as they saw befit their eldest son's only child. Their intentions may have been honorable, even loving, but the experience of displacement profoundly disturbed the young girl. Within a few short months, she orchestrated a collapse of her own, developing chronic eczema and acute asthma. She was gasping for life. From then on, the sense of impending suffocation always remained with her. Before nine months had passed, it was clear that the move to Worcester had not been a success. Elizabeth was then sent to live once again with her mother's family, this time joining her Aunt Maud in Revere, Massachusetts. Bishop was seven. It was during the first year of living in Revere that she began to write poems. She later wrote to a friend about these years. I think I have a prize, unhappy childhood, almost good enough for the textbooks. She described her young self as painfully, no, excruciatingly 
shy. As a mature adult, she couldn't escape the grief that so colored the development of her consciousness as a young girl. She told her friend Robert Lowell, When you write my epitaph, you must say I was the loneliest person who ever lived. In a child's voice, Bishop wrote one of the great poems about childhood. In the Waiting Room In Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist's appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown-up people, arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time, and while I waited, I read the National Geographic, I could read, and carefully studied the photographs. The inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Osa and Martin Johnson dressed in riding breeches, laced boots, and pith helmets. A dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black, naked women with necks wound round and round with wire like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date. Suddenly, from inside came an, oh, of pain. Aunt Consuelo's voice, not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then, I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice, in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. I, we, were falling, falling, our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. I said to myself, three days and you'll be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round, turning world into cold, blue-black space. But I felt, you are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one, too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a sidelong glance, I couldn't look any higher, at shadowy gray knees, trousers and skirts and boots and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened, that nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt, or me, or anyone? What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat, or even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one? How, and I didn't know any word for it, how unlikely, how had I come to be here like them? and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse, but hadn't. The waiting room was bright and too hot. 
It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another, and another. Then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts, were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. There are two vantage points of declamation in this poem, the child's and the adult poet's. They are so entwined as to be nearly one, and this, in effect, can be understood as the subject of the poem. The young girl has had a murky, unsettling epiphany while flipping through the pages of a magazine, a terrible realization that she is herself, at the same time, she is not unique. She, as she waits, she comes to see the child she is and has been, as well as the more grown-up person she is becoming. She's in the waiting room, but waiting for what? Truth? knowledge, adulthood. She looks back to innocence and forward to experience and is suddenly aware of these two states within her. The threshold, this state of flux, this in-betweenness, is called the liminal state. For Bishop, it was her creative fulcrum. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. The critic Lloyd Schwartz describes this moment as an almost mystical experience, a kind of ecstasy in reverse. Instead of the girl's soul leaving her body, another's enters it, takes possession of it. I scarcely dared, look, dared to look to see what it was I was. And what was she? Her discovery is that while she is herself, she's not just herself. She is somehow one with her aunt, whose cry slips from her own mouth, and also one with the others in the waiting room with their overcoats and hands. She is entirely singular, but then she has just grasped that everyone else is equally singular. It's even more astonishing, she is one with the women in the National Geographic with those awful hanging breasts. How unlikely it is. This idea of shared humanity is terrifying. This realization unnerves her sufficiently to make her succumb to the big black wave. She then pulls herself from this perilous undertow of insight back to the solidity of the seemingly unchanged present. Bishop felt affection for her aunts and for her boomer grandparents, but in the end, she had had to raise herself. Turning 16, she was enrolled at the Walnut Hill School, where a healthy discipline and order was imposed upon her. She improved in Latin and later said that translating Latin had been her best training for becoming a poet. Reading and writing were held to high standards and she was certainly up to them. She made something of a name for herself through her writing. While at school, she had her first poems published in the student magazine. She studied harmony and took piano lessons. Slowly, she made friends. Eventually, she flourished. A classmate painted this portrait decades later. Bishop looked remarkable, with tightly curly hair that stood straight up, while the rest of us all had straight hair that hung down. She was remarkable in many ways besides. She had read more widely and deeply than we had, but she carried her learning lightly. She was very funny. She had a big repertory of stories she could tell, not merely read, and of wonderful songs she could sing, like ballads and sea chanties. And if some school occasion called for a new song or a skit, it would appear overnight like magic in her hands. We're given here a glimpse of Bishop when she was still quite young. Though always carrying the fear of inheriting her mother's illness, 
she managed to come out from within herself enough to be respected by the other students. She had been long familiar with the sense of her otherness, her marginality. At school, she learned that this state of being would not entirely impede her ability to make human connections. In 1930, she entered Vassar College, soon after the great Wall Street crash of 29, though Vassar campus was minimally affected. Though she could be antisocial, she was befriended by several girls of her year, among them Mary McCarthy and Louise Crane, whose friendships lasted for decades. She was known as Bishop, or The Bishop. She did not suffer fools. Quite short, but upright in carriage, her Bishop-likeness was approved of, cherished by her friends. She worked hard at her studies and wrote poems. Bishop was a passionate music lover, played the piano forte, and frequented the jazz clubs of Harlem, where, introduced by Louise Crane, she met and came to know Billie Holiday, for whom she later wrote the poem's song for a colored singer. Bishop toyed with the idea of becoming a composer, or possibly a doctor. Vassar brought out the latent strength of will in Bishop. She had made friends and learned that her cleverness was appreciated. But as time went on, she could not avoid the disheartening awareness of only ever being a guest in other people's houses. In her senior year, urged on by a friend with sophisticated reading tastes, she began to read whatever she could find of the poetry of Marianne Moore. Working on a paper on Moore, Bishop approached the Vassar librarian, Fanny Borden, who was rumored to have a personal copy of Moore's recent collection of poems. Borden and Marianne Moore were lifelong friends. And the librarian asked Bishop if she would like to make the acquaintance of, an eminent, of the eminent poet. It was planned that the two women should meet one Saturday afternoon in March of 1934, outside the main reading room of the New York Public Library, the bench on the right. The two writers sat together for a while and talked. Bishop remembered her, Bishop remembered loving her immediately. I was very frightened, but I put on my new spring suit and took the train to New York. I had never seen a picture of Miss Moore. All I knew was that she had red hair and usually wore a wide-brimmed hat. I expected the hair to be bright red and for her to be tall and intimidating. I was right on time, even a bit early, but she was there before me. No matter how early one arrived, Marianne was always there first. And I saw at once, not very tall, and not in the least intimidating. She was 47, an age that seemed old to me then, and her hair was mixed with white to a faint rust pink. The large, flat, black hat was as I'd expected it to be. She wore a blue tweed suit that day, and as she usually did then, a man's polo shirt, as they were called, with a black bow at the neck. The effect was quaint, vaguely Bryn Mawr 1909, but stylish at the same time. I sat down, and she began to talk. It seems to me that Marianne talked to me steadily for the next 35 years. Unmarried, Moore lived with her formidable mother in Brooklyn. Between Bishop and Moore, right from the very beginning, there was a complex web of relatedness. Bishop was 23 when she met Moore. Just a few weeks later, after this encounter, Bishop's mother died in the sanatorium. As she was wont to do at year's end, she summarized significant events in her journal. For 1934, the entry reads, 
Met M.M. Mother died. Graduated. Bishop's manner with Moore was always respectful and grateful, though not always entirely deferential. Moore was to comment that there was often about Elizabeth a flicker of impudence. Bishop knew she could learn a great deal from the older poet. Moore represented the apotheosis of her craft. However, Bishop did not ingratiate herself. Part of her kept a considered distance, as she was to do with relationships all her life. At this time, Marianne Moore was not yet legendary, but she would later become so. She had been the editor of the great magazine of literary modernity, The Dial, and her skills as an editor were put to good use on Bishop's poems. Moore was beloved and admired by a small, refined sector of the literary world, but her latest book, whose royalty had netted the celebrated poet all of $14, had come out over 10 years before their meeting. The infusion of Bishop's interest and careful adulation must have had real significance for the more mature poet, stimulated and heartened her. Moore selected three poems by Bishop to include in an anthology where established poets introduced the work of younger ones. She championed Bishop's work and wrote about it with insight bordering on prophecy. She nurtured Bishop's writing, urging the poems on editors and publishers of journals. At just the right moment, at the maturing of her gift, Bishop found an advocate she both trusted and respected. The anthology appeared in 1935, when she was only a year out of college. Bishop made two lengthy trips abroad in two successive years. For years to come, she would devote months to travel, signifying her homelessness and her restlessness. She was searching, on the move, unsettled. She soaked up impressions in the wide world and filtered them down into a thimbleful of images and feelings stored away for later use. She went with Louise Crane to Paris and London, Morocco and Spain. They were young, full of yearning and energy. But Bishop was heart-sore and homesick. Homesick for a home she had never had. Homesick for the idea of home. In his collection of philosophical musings, the French writer Pascal declared, I have discovered that all the unhappiness of man arises from one single fault, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Bishop pointedly chose not to stay quietly in her chamber. Contrary to Pascal's discovery, she found that staying in her chamber made her unhappy. For her, happiness was a question of travel. Or was it? Questions of travel. There are too many waterfalls here. The crowded streams hurry too rapidly down to the sea, and the pressure of so many clouds on the mountaintops makes them spill over the sides in soft, slow motion, turning to waterfalls under our very eyes. For if those streaks, those mile-long, shiny tear stains, aren't waterfalls yet, in a quick age or so, as ages go here, they probably will be, but if the streams and clouds keep traveling, traveling, the mountains look like the hulls of capsized ships, slime-hung and barnacled. Think of the long trip home. Should we have stayed at home and thought of here? Where should we be today? Is it right to be watching strangers in a play in this strangest of theaters? 
What childishness is it that while there's a breath of life in our bodies, we are determined to rush to see the sun the other way around? The tiniest green hummingbird in the world. To stare at some inexplicable old stonework, inexplicable and impenetrable, at any view, instantly seen and always, always delightful. Oh, must we dream our dreams and have them too? And have we room for one more folded sunset, still quite warm? But surely it would have been a pity not to have seen the trees along this road really exaggerated in their beauty, not to have seen them gesturing like noble pantomimists robed in pink, not to have had to stop for gas and heard the sad, two-noted, wooden tune of disparate wooden clogs carelessly clacking over a grease-stained filling station floor. In another country, the clogs would all be tested. Each pair there would have identical pitch. A pity not to have heard the other, less primitive music of the fat brown bird who sings above the broken gasoline pump in a bamboo church of Jesuit Baroque, three towers, five silver crosses. Yes, pity not to have pondered blurredly and inconclusively on what connection can exist for centuries between the crudest wooden footwear and, careful and finicky, the whittled fantasies of wooden cages. Never to have studied history in the weak calligraphy of songbirds' cages. And never to have had to listen to rain so much like politicians' speeches. Two hours of unrelenting oratory, and then a sudden golden silence in which the traveler takes a notebook, writes, is it lack of imagination that makes us come to imagined places, not just stay at home? Or could Pascal have been not entirely right about just sitting quietly in one's room? Continent, city, country, society. The choice is never wide and never free. And here or there, no. Should we have stayed at home, wherever that may be? Returning from Europe to New York, Bishop suffered a crisis of confidence in her writing. She didn't think she had it in her to be a poet. She seriously thought of applying to medical school. Marianne Moore's intervention at this time was critical and effective, couched in the terms of increased intimacy. She dropped the formality of her address to the young poet as Miss Bishop, and for the first time called her Elizabeth. Such a gesture touched her, and Bishop rose to the task. She deferred to Moore and admired her. I never left her Brooklyn house without feeling happier, uplifted, even inspired, determined to be good, to work harder, not to worry about what other people thought, never to try to publish anything until I thought I'd done my best with it, no matter how many years it took, or never to publish at all. For the next few years, there was an ongoing, animated exchange of talk about Bishop's poems. More than would ever be the case again, Bishop was under the wing of an older poet, whose presumption was equal only to her depth of feeling for Bishop. Moore scrutinized the poems and made corrections, 
suggestions, deletions. The older poet did not always approve. The younger poet did not always concede. Bishop was always transgressing the boundaries that Moore kept rigidly enforced. When Bishop used the term water closet in a poem, it occasioned a lengthy letter from Moore on the proper uses of language. You can just feel Bishop squirming to break free of this shackle of propriety. It is a tribute to both of these great writers that their friendship, deep and abiding, weathered these tumultuous seasons and continued on. Living in New York after the years at Vassar, Bishop and Louise Crane grew closer. Crane was a rich girl from a proud family. Her father had been governor of Massachusetts and a United States senator. And when he died, her mother moved to New York, started a literary and artistic salon, and became a trustee of the Museum of Modern Art. Louise was a jazz baby, dri driving a Duesenberg and always drinking champagne. She was not intellectual. She had gone to Vassar because it was a finishing school for rich girls like herself, but never graduated, repeating her freshman year three times. Letter to New York for Louise Crane. In your next letter, I wish you'd say where you were going and what you were doing. How were the plays? And after the plays, what other pleasures you're pursuing? Taking cabs in the middle of the night? Driving as if to save your soul, where the road goes round and round the park and the meter glares like a mortal owl? And the trees look so queer and green standing alone in big black caves, and suddenly you're in a different place where everything seems to happen in waves, and most of the jokes you just can't catch, like dirty words rubbed off a slate. And the songs are loud, but somehow dim, and it gets so terribly late. And coming out of the brownstone house to the gray sidewalk, watered street, one side of the building rises with the sun, like a glistening field of wheat. Wheat, not oats, dear. I'm afraid if it's wheat, it's none of your sowing. Nevertheless, I'd like to know what you are doing and where you are going. Like Bishop, Louise loved fishing and sailing. She took Elizabeth down to Florida and introduced her to Key West, where the two young women fell in love. The sleepy backwater of a town, its simple structures and pervasive tranquility by the sea, reminded Bishop of Nova Scotia. In 1938, together, they bought a house in Key West. It was the first house Bishop ever owned, but much more importantly, for a time, it was a real home. Bishop settled in with what can only be imagined as grateful relief. She had her first sense of freedom and of happiness. She became a wonderful cook, and I think, a gifted amateur painter. She settled down to write poems and stories, and her correspondence with friends flourished. Bishop was a methodical poet, bordering on the fanatical, taking her time, fashioning, reworking, waiting for the right word, the right image, the perfect simile to appear. Her letters, by comparison, though also full of minute detail and polish, are all dash, 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 scribble, 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 type, type, type. Letters appeared to fly out of her while poems seemed only slowly to ooze. Robert Lowell, whose creative process was antithetical to this quiet, patient coddling of words, penned the most exacting picture of Bishop at work. Have you seen an inchworm crawl on a leaf? 
cling to the very end, revolve in air, feeling for something, to reach to something. Do you still hang your words in air, ten years unfinished, glued to your notice board with gaps or empties for the unimaginable phrase, unerring muse who makes the casual perfect? Bishop's poems have a naturalness of tone about them, a freshness, a quality that makes them appear as if the poet is thinking aloud through the poem. Her poetical voice is a spoken voice of understatement, artfulness, and emotion. However, this voice surfaces only after a lengthy process of intense fermentation, reduction, and restraint. The result can at times be precious in its attempt to show no sign at all of the strain of its long gestation. In Key West, Bishop worked hard, the Puritan work ethic in paradise. The exotic birds and sea creatures, the flora and the fauna of the swamps, the prevalence of decay, all this stimulated her, and her poems are full of mangrove roots and tanagers, Cuban shanty huts and palm trees. Yet it is an ordinary creature, simply a tremendous fish, that acts as a bridge within the poet between the young girl from the Canadian maritime provinces and her older, more knowing, Key West self. The fish. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in a corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable, and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed. The irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil seen through the lenses of old, scratched Isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like hung five old pieces of fish line, or four, and a wire leader with a swivel still attached with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines, and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. 
I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange, the sun-cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, 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 and I let the fish go. As critic David Callstone points out, Bishop's descriptive poems are themselves critiques of descriptive powers. This fish has been caught on two levels, caught by the fisherman on a line and caught by the poet in the lines of description. Framed between the simple opening and closing statements, I caught a tremendous fish and I let the fish go, lies a complex outpouring of observations. Inside and outside flow into each other. Once again, we have crossed over into the state of flux. We have entered Bishop's liminal state. Where do we encounter the fish? Beside the boat, half out of water. Bishop realizes, too, she is a fish out of water, identifying with the atavistic, air-gasping, mute life force of the fish. We are shown what is external, the skin like strips of wallpaper, the barnacles, rosettes of lime, while what is internal is inferred, the coarse white fish packed looking like feathers and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. Can you hear the hint of metamorphosis of fish into bird and fish into flower? With such poems, Bishop was poised to make her debut as a published poet, but she failed to find a publisher. She submitted a manuscript of her best work to Random House but was rejected by them. She tried Viking, then Simon & Schuster, with no luck again. Rejections piled up. Years passed. Once again, Marianne Moore came to the rescue. In December of 1944, she wrote to Bishop and offered to recommend her for a Houghton Mifflin Poetry Prize. Bishop's submitted manuscript was selected from over 833 other entries. She was awarded the first prize of $1,000 and a contract for a new book of poems to be published. Within months, the New Yorker offered her a first right of refusal contract for her poems, and she won a $2,500 Guggenheim Fellowship to work on her next book. She had arrived. Bishop's first book of poems, North and South, finally appeared in August 1946. Despite her fears that it was intellectually too thin, the book was well received by prominent critics, and several august poets tipped their hats in recognition of a fellow practitioner. In The Nation, Marianne Moores wrote a review entitled, A Modest Expert. Elizabeth Bishop, she claimed, is spectacular in being unspectacular. Why has no one else thought of this? Why not be accurate and modest? At last we have someone who knows who is not didactic. In the Partisan Review, Randall Jarrell, probably the most exacting literary critic of the post-war era, wrote that some of these poems are the most calmly beautiful, deeply sympathetic poems of our time. Miss Bishop's poems are never forced. In her best work, restraint, calm, and proportion are implicit in every detail of organization and workmanship. Her work is unusually personal and honest in its wit, perception, and sensitivity, and in its restrictions, too. All her poems have written underneath, I have seen it. At the Fish Houses. Although it is a cold evening, 
Down by one of the fish houses, an old man sits netting, his net, in the gloaming almost invisible, a dark purple-brown, and his shuttle worn and polished. The air smells so strong of codfish it makes one's nose run and one's eyes water. The five fish houses have steeply peaked roofs and narrow cleated gangplanks slant up to storerooms in the gables for the wheelbarrows to be pushed up and down on. All is silver. The heavy surface of the sea, swelling slowly as if considering spilling over, is opaque, but the silver of the benches, the lobster pots and masts, scattered among the wild, jagged rocks, is of an apparent translucence, like the small old buildings with an emerald moss growing on their shoreward walls. The big fish tubs are completely lined with layers of beautiful herring scales, and the wheelbarrows are similarly plastered with creamy iridescent coats of mail, with small iridescent flies crawling on them. Up on the little slope behind the houses, set in the sparse, bright sprinkle of grass, is an ancient wooden capstan, cracked, with two long bleached handles and some melancholy stains, like dried blood, where the ironwork has rusted. The old man accepts a lucky strike. He was a friend of my grandfather. We talk of the decline in the population and of codfish and herring while he waits for a herring boat to come in. There are sequins on his vest and on his thumb. He has scraped the scales, the principal beauty, from unnumbered fish with that black old knife, the blade of which is almost worn away. Down at the water's edge, at the place where they haul up the boats, up the long ramp descending into the water, thin silver tree trunks are laid horizontally across the gray stones, down and down at intervals of four or five feet. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, element bearable to no mortal, to fish and to seals. One seal particularly I have seen here evening after evening. He was curious about me. He was interested in music. Like me, a believer in total immersion, so I used to sing him Baptist hymns. I also sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He stood up in the water and regarded me steadily, moving his head a little. Then he would disappear, then suddenly emerge almost in the same spot with a sort of shrug, as if it were against his better judgment. Cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear, the clear, gray, icy water. Back, behind us, the dignified, tall firs begin, bluish, associating with their shadows. A million Christmas trees stand, waiting for Christmas. The water seems suspended above the rounded gray and blue-gray stones. I have seen it over and over, the same sea, the same, slightly indifferently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones and then the world. If you should dip your hand in, 
your wrist would ache immediately. Your bones would begin to ache and your hand would burn as if the water were a transmutation of fire that feeds on stones and burns with a dark gray flame. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be. Dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, derived from the rocky breasts, forever flowing and drawn, and since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. The poem begins hesitatingly with a qualification, although it is a cold evening. The poet almost apologizes for her intrusion. We are led obliquely into the word picture. First we see the old man at his nets, then smell the potent odor of the fish, then feel the structural soundness of the fish houses themselves. Their amazing wheelbarrow gangplanks seem at once both to come up from the sea and go down into it. Finally, like a rising swell of Mahler strings, we experience an initial transcendence. All is silver. But the moment for revelation has not yet come. The heavy surface of the sea is merely considering spilling over. We're not quite there yet. Iridescence sparkles everywhere on everything, and we come back to the old man, gilded in silver, smoking. A personal note is for the first time struck. He was a friend of my grandfather. We follow the old man's gaze. We look out at the sea. Bishop's gift as a poet manifests itself in her charting of a territory between the objective and the subjective, to neither quite belonging, as Rilke expressed it. The poet instinctually hovers, not imposing herself, but also not flinching from what she sees. And then, unexpectedly, mediating between land and sea, a seal pops up. He is attentive to the poet's hymn singing, but eventually resubmerges, and as he plunges back down into the deep, he takes us with him. The poem retrenches, sucked back like a spent wave. The poet is leery of upsurge, of the transcendent lyricism. The poem begins to crest again towards transcendence, then pulls back like the tide. Though the poet's use of anaphora, the rhetorical device of repetition and renewal, she invokes the measured rise and fall of the sea. Listen, the poem is breathing, exhaling, inhaling, like the sea. I have seen over and over the same sea, the same, slightly and differently swinging above the stones, icily free above the stones, above the stones and then the world. The poet then sharply intrudes on this aquatic narcotic. If you should dip your hand in, your wrist would ache immediately. And if, as if that wasn't enough. If you tasted it, it would first taste bitter, then briny, then surely burn your tongue. Then there is a final swell, the great flood of lyric power, the exquisite release of total immersion. The poet casts aside the detachment of observation and yields to the visionary. It is like what we imagine knowledge to be, dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free, drawn from the cold, hard mouth of the world, 
derived from the rocky breasts forever, flowing and drawn, and since our knowledge is historical, flowing and flown. About these lines, Bishop later said she wrote them at one sitting and hardly knew what she was writing. Seamus Heaney says that these concluding lines possess the sin qua non of all lyric utterance. They fortify our inclination to credit promptings of our intuitive being. They help us say in the first recesses of ourselves, yes, that's right. Thank you for putting words on it and making it official. In January 1947, Randall Jarrell introduced Elizabeth Bishop to Robert Lowell, who had just reviewed her book. As a critic and a poet, Lowell was very quick to sense and define the singular achievement of North and South. He praised it lavishly. But Lowell was also hard on the book. He claimed that 10 of the 30 poems were failures, trivial and self-indulgent. This worked at once to alarm and to fortify Bishop. She welcomed hard criticism, and if he felt that 10 of her poems were failures, it would only cause her to work harder because he had so entirely praised 10 others as being large and perfect. She felt that he, of all the critics, understood what she was up to. Bishop always felt constrained by the fact that her poems were brief and few. Lowell, in his review of North and South, assured her that these poems were part of a larger endeavor, that their remarkable qualities outweighed any concern about the size of the offering. Lowell lived in the spotlight of the world of letters, a light at that time predisposed to favor young male writers. Though he relished the camaraderie and bustle of the literary fray, and Bishop abhorred it, she was too shy and also too critical, they quickly found common ground and made a place for themselves apart from everything, apart from everyone. They entered into a correspondence that, like their complicated friendship, would last all the remaining days of their lives. From the beginning, there was an immediate and equal attraction of minds. The question of their physical attractions for each other is, as always, less easy to convey, congested with complexities of sexual history and ambiguous desires. Lowell had recently left his first wife, the novelist Jean Stafford, and was never long without some entanglement or other. Bishop's love affair with Louise Crane and others had long ago reverted to ongoing affectionate friendship. Bishop was awed by Lowell's erudition and his energy. She dismissed most of what she read of contemporary poetry, but found in his writing something challenging and upsetting. Lowell, for his part, couldn't seem to get over her naturalness, as if her poetry was something like breathing, in contrast to his belching of fire. Bishop understood that to set herself up by comparison to Lowell was folly. She would never be like him. Slowly it dawned on her that her habitual state of withdrawal might actually be a source of her poetic inspiration and that her marginality could actually be a blessing. Lowell helped Bishop as a writer to come to terms with her inability to do other than what she felt was right for her. He inspired her to trust her own placement, her remove, her loneliness. Lowell was a powerful magnet for her. She was certainly attracted to him in a way that she was not always, that was not always controllable, and she sensed that too much time spent within his force field could overpower and corrupt her. She monitored this attraction, yielding to it, but mastering it. On his side, Lowell championed Bishop, 
ushered her more into circulation with their literary contemporaries. He introduced her to Ezra Pound, to William Carlos Williams, to Eliot and Auden. His quiet, behind-the-scenes pressure resulted in many of her early awards and honors. Not until later would she discover his all-but-invisible promptings. Stepping down from a term as poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, Lowell urged the job upon Bishop. In the early part of 1949, she agreed to sign on the job for a one-year term. From the moment the ink was dry, she became almost hysterical with doubts and fears. Was she worthy of such a distinguished post? Could she actually perform the necessary tasks? Wouldn't other poets resent her and hold her inexperience against her? Somehow she managed to fully execute her responsibilities as poetry consultant during the year's tenure in Washington, but she had begun to drink heavily. In 1951, Bishop was awarded a fellowship from Bryn Mawr College that came with a prize of $2,500. Marion Moore was one of the judges. This prize helped to turn Bishop's life back around. Soon after the receipt of the prize money, she booked passage on a ship going down to Cape Horn, then back up the west coast of South America. The ship's destination was inconsequential. Bishop's plans were indefinite, but she knew she had to have a change of scene. Sailing in November from New York, she found herself one of nine passengers aboard a small freighter heading south. Arrival at Santos. Here is a coast. Here is a harbor. Here, after a meager diet of horizon, is some scenery. Impractically shaped and, who knows, self-pitying mountains, sad and harsh beneath their frivolous greenery, with a little church on top of one. And warehouses, some of them painted a feeble pink or blue, and some tall, uncertain palms. Oh, tourist. Is this how this country is going to answer you and your immodest demands for a different world and a better life and a complete comprehension of both at last and immediately after 18 days of suspension? Finish your breakfast. The tender is coming, a strange and ancient craft flying a strange and brilliant rag. So that's the flag. I never saw it before. I somehow never thought of there being a flag. But of course there was, all along. And coins, I presume, and paper money. They remain to be seen. And gingerly now, we climb down the ladder backward, myself and a fellow passenger named Miss Breen, descending into the midst of 26 freighters waiting to be loaded with green coffee beans. Please, boy, do be more careful with that boat hook. Watch out! Oh, it has caught Miss Breen's skirt! There! Miss Breen is about 70, a retired police lieutenant, six feet tall, with beautiful bright blue eyes and a kind expression. Her home, when she is at home, is in Glens Falls, New York. There, we are settled. The customs officials will speak English, we hope, and leave us our bourbon and cigarettes. Ports are necessities, like postage stamps or soap, but they seldom seem to care what impression they make, or, like this, only attempt, since it does not matter, the unassertive colors of soap or postage stamps, wasting away like the former, 
slipping the way the latter do when we, email, when we mail the letters we wrote on the boat, <laughs> either because the glue here is very inferior or because of the heat. We leave Santos at once. We are driving to the interior. I love that little slip into email. <laughs> and I'd also like to mention that uh, in that last stanza, uh, one of the last stanzas, she says, ports are necessities like postage stamps or soap. And I had actually typed poets. I had made a type. <laughs> After two days of rainy sightseeing in Sao Paulo, Bishop took the train up to Rio. There, on Christmas Day, she had a severe allergic reaction, eating a cashew nut. Her eyes swelled so grotesquely she couldn't see out of them for three weeks. For two more weeks after the swelling subsided, she remained incapacitated by asthma and eczema. She couldn't write or read. A Brazilian woman named Lota de Macedo Suarez, who Bishop had met in New York ten years earlier through Louise Crane, came to take care of Bishop. Lota insta installed the ailing poet high above Copacabana Beach in her penthouse apartment. The endearing ministrations of Lota and her many friends began immediately, and the warm, sunny nature of the Brazilian personality worked its profound healing powers upon the physically compromised, exhausted poet. While Bishop recovered, Lota came and went each day. She spent much of her time in Petropolis, about 50 miles north of Rio, where she was building a strikingly modern house on a black granite mountain near a waterfall. Between their almost daily visits and long telephone conversations, the stirrings of affection deepened. Bishop at first delayed her steamer trip, then finally put it off for good. Lota asked Bishop to stay with her in Brazil, offering to build a little separate writing studio for her at the new house in Petropolis. Bishop, who was moved to tears, agreed. She wrote back to a friend in the States. This place is wonderful. I only hope you don't have to get to be 42 before you feel so at home. Lota was a rare bird, an intellectual society girl. From a large and wealthy Carioca family, she was avidly involved in a vast array of cultural and political activities. She had educated herself in architecture, literature, and the visual arts. She knew about dance, went to concerts and theater, and had a passion for modern design. She loved the excitement and energy of New York and had spent much time there in the 40s. She was a fascinating and intelligent talker, full of witty repartee and wild stories. She was completely cosmopolitan. Though always well turned out and quietly stylish, Bishop was at heart, happily, a far more provincial woman. The world in which Lota lived was tremendously sophisticated, but out beyond the penthouses and the lavish parties, Brazil was actually a backwater, provincial like Bishop, who was strongly drawn to this aspect of the place. Lota admired Bishop's commitment to writing and envied her career as a working artist. She held her up as an example of what a woman could do with her life, as against the poor example of educated, privileged Brazilian women. Bishop relished Lotus' vivacity and her intelligence. As their mutual friend, the pianist Arthur Gold, put it, Elizabeth had a very warm, rather sad, half-shy, and half-loving air. She assumed a passive state a good deal of the time from sheer shyness and fright. Lota, 
was the most volatile, outgoing, almost exhibitionist Latin type. She was very small, not particularly good looking, but immensely vivacious. And in a sense, she was everything Elizabeth wasn't. She was Elizabeth South, the Latin side of her character. <laughs> Elizabeth delighted in all the exuberance Lota had, all the enthusiasms in anything from a gadget from the five and 10 to the great modern house that she built. True to her word, Lota had Bishop's studio built for her within a year of her arrival in Brazil. Bishop went back to the States to settle some business there and packed up all her books in Key West. She happily unpacked them in her workroom by the waterfall in Petropolis. It was the beginning of what were to be for some time the happiest years of her life, a moment of blissful connectedness, a time of flowering. The samba entered Elizabeth's life, a source of joy and release for her forever after. The two women came to be known in the affectionate Brazilian manner as Dona Lota and Dona Elisabetti. As had often happened in Bishop's life, she found a caretaker, someone who faced for her the small battles of life which otherwise would have rendered her impotent. Bishop was secure and confident for a while, nestled amidst the exotic surroundings, the orchids, the snails, the brightly colored birds. She began to unfurl images from her trove of childhood memories. From her studio window, she looked out and also looked in. From the great distance that travel offers, she was finally able to write about what was always near to her. She wrote about her mother and about Nova Scotia. In December 1955, after four years living in Brazil, Bishop's second book of poems, A Cold Spring, appeared. A few months later, in May of 1956, the book won the Pulitzer Prize. Undeniably, this meant a great deal to Bishop, but immediately may have meant more even to Lota. It confirmed all she had been telling her Brazilian friends about Bishop's talent. Her new status as a prize winner made Bishop more of a public figure in Brazil. Her reputation was growing. The friendship between Bishop and Lowell was deepened by the geographic separation between them, and their correspondence is full of mutual admiration. Somehow, they became each other's best friend and literal, literal literary confidant, best friends who rarely only ever see each other. Emotional entanglements between them periodically tightened and relaxed over the years, yet a deep esteem took hold as long as they kept each other at the distant end of a far-flung letter. Bishop dedicated a poem to Lowell. He carried the text of it around with him for the rest of his life, like a talisman in his wallet. The poem takes place on St. John's Day, June 24th, with a folk ritual involving the igniting of paper fire balloons. The Armadillo for Robert Lowell. This is the time of year when almost every night the frail, illegal fire balloons appear, climbing the mountain height, rising toward a saint still honored in these parts, the paper chambers flush and fill with light that comes and goes, like hearts. Once up against the sky, it's hard to tell them from the stars. Planets, that is, the tinted ones. Venus going down, or Mars, or the pale green one. With a wind, they flare and falter, wobble and toss. But if it's still, they steer between the kite sticks of the Southern Cross, receding, 
dwindling solemnly and steadily forsaking us, or in the downdraft from a peak, suddenly turned dangerous. Last night, another big one fell. It splattered like an egg of fire against the cliff behind the house. The flame ran down. We saw the pair of owls who nest there flying up and up, their whirling black and white stained bright pink underneath until they shrieked up out of sight. The ancient owl's nest must have burned. Hastily, all alone, a glistening armadillo left the scene, rose-flecked, head down, tail down, and then a baby rabbit jumped out, short-eared to our surprise. So soft, a handful of intangible ash with fixed, ignited eyes. Too pretty, dreamlike mimicry. Oh, falling fire and piercing cry and panic and a weak mailed fist clenched ignorant against the sky. The beginning of the poem is like an incantation, marveling at the dramatic beauty of the uprising balloon. Then the tenor of the poem quickly switches to observe terror, the beauty of the animals and all their vulnerability. As the flames from the paper balloons spread destruction in the forest, even the armadillo, well protected as he is, is defenseless before the terrifying rain of fire. The poem is a reverie on the fragile coexistence of man, beast, and their shared occupancy of this world. It is also a tribute to Lowell, who, against all advice, had stood firm to his principles and been jailed as a conscientious objector in World War II. The vulnerability of the forest creatures evokes Lowell's fears for the unprotected civilians under incendiary bombardment. The armadillo addresses the role of the aesthetic in everyday life. It is decidedly anti-romantic. In the romantic tradition, a visionary poem would introduce a ruin or a devastation, let's say Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, a terrestrial subject moving upwards towards spiritual transformation and transcendence. The reader is led from the prosaic to the ineffable in the poem's heavenward tra trajectory. Bishop torques this paradigm, reversing the poem's dynamic. Her poem begins with transcendence. The beauty of the glowing paper chambers, hard to tell from the stars in the night sky, climbing to their full height. Then all comes crashing downwards, spreading devastation in its wake. Bishop is questioning the value of beauty of the aesthetic in life. Her lines carry with them a moral weight, but its weight is uncomfortably propped up by considerable ambivalence. The sublime is called into account for its disastrous consequences. Poetry itself is called into question. Too pretty, too dreamlike mimicry. Our gaze is yanked from the sky back down to the earth. The poem's journey is that of the human spirit divided against itself. Bishop condones the doubts about the prerogatives of art. In return, Lowell dedicated a poem to Bishop, an homage to her great technique. He wrote to her that, really, I've just broken through to where you've always been. This was welcome balm to Bishop's spirits, vindication for her fierce and lonely struggles. All along, 
Her instinct to distance herself from the world of academia and theory had left her feeling intellectually inadequate to Lowell and the big boys. Now she was being acknowledged, even bowed down to, by the brilliant mercurial Robert Lowell. Skunk Hour was his attempt to emulate her and validate her influence upon him. Here's an excerpt from it. Skunk Hour. One dark night, my tutor Ford climbed the hill skull. I watched for love cars. Lights turned down. They lay together, hull to hull, where the graveyard shelves on the town. My mind's not right. A car radio bleats, Love, oh careless love. I hear my ill spirit sob in each blood cell, as if my hand were at its throat. I myself am hell. Nobody's here. Only skunks that search in the moonlight for a bite to eat. They march on their souls up Main Street. White stripes, moonstruck eyes, red fire under the chalk dry and spar spire of the Trinitarian Church. I stand on top of our back steps and breathe the rich air. A mother skunk with her column of kittens swills the garbage pail. She jabs her wedge head in a cup of sour cream, drops her ostrich tail, and will not scare. A dark erotic edginess underlines the poem, heightened, then muted, then repeated, a frisson of sexual attraction and repulsion. Lowell invokes the voyeuristic night wanderings of Walt Whitman in his late years. The appearance of the skunk at the poem's end echoes the armadillo's late arrival in Bishop's poem. Nonetheless, the dedication to Bishop is somewhat troubling. I experience the defiant mother skunk, who will not scare, as Bishop staking her unfashionable aesthetic claim. Lowell, though, also identifies with the skunk, like Flaubert declaring, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. Certainly, the skunk is Lowell. A confusion of sexual roles prevails. The skunk's gesture, as she jabs her wedge head in a cup of sour cream, is certainly sexually suggestive, even aggressive, leaving Lowell at the top of the stairs a kind of voyeur. It's hard to dismiss from this image his deeply seated sexual ambivalence towards Bishop. Lowell remains aloof, knowing he cannot reach out to her. She will not scare, but he does. Skunk Hour is a watershed for American poetry. It was written in 1957. At this moment, the abstract expressionist painters were triumphing over Paris, making New York the center of painting. And the, this poem marks the ascendancy of a similar voice in contemporary American poetry. The voice would soon come to eclipse the English-dominated poetical era of Yeats and Eliot and Auden. Curiously, it is Bishop who pulled Lowell to the forefront of a new style forging the confessional school of poetry with which he would become so completely associated. Bishop was beginning to find the exoticism of Brazilian landscape and the variety of people more familiar. The anarchic, often surrealistic display of teeming life was beginning to lose its edge. At the same time, she became fearful that she was losing Lota to a demanding job she loved one that left her preoccupied and without time. A troubled rapport established itself between the two women. The coming years grew into a stasis of sorts, each woman pursuing her separate endeavor. The differences between them were more attenuated than before. 
Lota, rational and theoretical, controlling, outgoing. Bishop, intuitive and perceptive, tentative, withdrawn. Bishop needed to put some distance between herself and Lota, who was, busy, who was burying herself deeper and deeper in a project she could not seem to wrest from the overarching machismo of Brazilian conventions. Lota was wearing herself down and beginning to accuse Bishop of being unsupportive, a charge that had some small truth to it. Charmed by the tranquility and beauty of Ouro Preto, a small 17th century mining town in the mountains, Bishop bought a house there, or rather the shell of a very old house that needed almost total renovation, a shell that sat handsomely situated overlooking a valley and several spectacularly beautiful Baroque churches. She had been living in Brazil for 14 years and was confident she could make it her home. But the following years were exceedingly hard. In search of income to finance her renovation project, she went to Seattle, to the University of Washington, to start teaching. The prospect of students and the classes she had to shape had, in her terrible, had her in a terrible state. She didn't know what she could say or how she could conduct a class. She knew that as a teacher, her focus on rhyme and meter, form and structure, was nowadays anathema. It was the 60s. Poetry was letting it all hang out. As was now symptomatic, her anxiety would drive her to drink. Bishop missed many classes and periodically collapsed in a jumble of asthmatic episodes requiring hospital stays. At the end of the interminable term, she returned to Brazil, only to find that Lota was under strict medical care. Her friends accused Bishop of having abandoned Lota in her hour of need. The situation became unbearable. Bishop again left Brazil to go to New York for several months. She settled into a life there, and when Lota decided to come and join her, Bishop was touched, but apprehensive about whether or not Lota was really strong enough to make the trip. Against the advice of her doctors, Lota flew to New York to be with Bishop. She was in terrible shape. The morning after her arrival, she took too many pills, whether intentionally or not is unclear. She went into a coma and died a few days later. The upheaval was nearly complete. Bishop felt that everything stable had been pulled out from underneath her. For all the melodrama to which each was inclined, Lota had been Bishop's anchor. Now she found herself again adrift. Robert Lowell accepted a residency at Oxford. Aware of her predicament, he asked Bishop to replace him for a term teaching at Harvard. Though very unsure about teaching after her experience in Seattle, she recognized a lifeline being tossed to, her, tossed to her. She went to Boston in September 1970. She tried to put Brazil and all exotic realms behind her. Teaching at Harvard was a very different kettle of fish from teaching in Seattle. At the very heart of academic culture, she was once again a fish out of water. Listening to a colleague give a critical reading of a poem, Bishop then asked him to explain what deconstruction was. The colleague mapped out the parameters of postmodern literary discourse in about 10 minutes, at the end of which Bishop's reply was, Oh dear. <laughs> As always, she was diffident about her work and her reputation. Her work was often regarded as old-fashioned, out-of-date, minor. Her conflicted sense of herself as a teacher and public reader of her work did little to dismiss her as an artist. 
Her students had been Lowell students. They found none of his Olympian aura in her classes. At Harvard, women were generally demeaned and held subservient positions, and in this atmosphere, Bishop felt more keenly overlooked. She befriended Lowell's friend, the poet Frank Bedart, and one day in his room, she pulled from the shelf a book called The Modern Poets, Ian Hamilton's first study on Lowell, Jarrell, Plath, and Berryman. She scanned the contents and saw plainly that there was no mention of her. She was not to be found in The Modern Poet. She closed the book, turned to Bedard, and said, It's like being buried alive. On a somatic level, the sense of suffocation from literary neglect was certainly allied to her breath-depriving asthma. Bishop's asthma can be seen as an expression of grief, as suppressed sobbing. Her chronic predisposition to drown herself in drink is another kind of burial. Bedard saw her drinking as a force used to tear down her propriety. He wrote, Enormous ranges of her feelings she seemingly couldn't bear to express, even with her closest friends, unless she was drinking. Subjects like Lotta, especially Lotta's death, her own sexual life, those she had been in love with, betrayals, guilt, her mother, drinking itself. When she drank, it seemed that she had ripped down the self-possessed facade of her life, the poise that intelligence and luck and accomplishment had given her. She just... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> she descended into an inferno of still alive, wholly unreconciled feeling. Yet without fail, she was furious for, with herself for having inflicted this on herself and those who cared for her. Unlike Lowell, whose mania manifested itself wildly, hers was largely internalized. Lowell would take a swing at somebody. Bishop swung at herself. Her last book of new poems, Geography Three, appeared in December 1976. Even by Bishop's diminutive standards, this new book of poems was exceedingly slight, with only 10 poems. Several of them were long poems. Each of them was a world. After her period of happiness in Brazil and the ensuing nightmare years, the poet relaxes into a state of resignation and a kind of wisdom pours forth. Reading her correspondence, we see what price she paid for this. One month after it appeared, Geography Three won the National Book Award. Several months later, Robert Lowell died of a heart attack in a taxi cab coming into New York City from the airport. The two poets had remained trusting and devoted friends through times of great personal distress. They had weathered many storms. But in the crucible of give and take of poetic influence, each had yielded perceptively to the other's way of making poems. Bishop cautiously came around to letting some of Lowell's use of personal history inspire some of her late poems. She wrote an elegy for him. It took her all summer. North Haven, in memoriam, Robert Lowell. I can make out the rigging of a schooner a mile off. I can count the new cones on the spruce. It is so still, the pale bay wears a milky skin 
The sky, no clouds except for one long carded horse's tail. The islands haven't shifted since last summer, even if I like to pretend they have. Drifting in a dreamy sort of way, a little north, a little south, or sidewise. And that they're free within the blue frontiers of bay. This month, our favorite one is full of flowers. Buttercups, red clover, purple vetch, hackweed still burning, daisies pied, eyebright, the fragrant bedstraws, incandescent stars, and more returned to paint the meadows with delight. The goldfinches are back, or others like them, and the white-throated sparrow's five-note song, pleading and pleading, brings tears to the eyes. Nature repeats herself, or almost does. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Revise, revise, revise. Years ago, you told me it was here. In 1932, you first discovered girls and learned to sail and learned to kiss. You had such fun, you said, that classic summer. Fun. It always seemed to leave you at a loss. You left North Haven, anchored in its rock, afloat in mystic blue. And now, you've left for good. You can't derange or rearrange your poems again. But the sparrows can their song. The words won't change again. Sad friend. You cannot change. In her gentle chiding of Lowell, can you hear the song of the birds enter into the poem? Repeat, repeat, repeat. Revise, revise, revise. Flower references are lifted from Shakespeare's poetry, from the end of Love's Labor Lost, a song where daisies pied and paint the meadows with delight are also rhymed. Bishop had invited Lowell to come visit her at North Haven, an island off the coast of Maine, where, through the 70s, she rented a house each summer. He wrote back to say he would come and bring Mary McCarthy with him, too. Bishop was not willing to risk spoiling a few happy weeks with a visit from McCarthy, whose novel, The Group, had irritated her with its caricature of their Vassar friends. So she withdrew the invitation. The next summer, Lowell was dead. In the fourth stanza, the descriptive voice of the poem shifts to a more somber, elegiac key. She writes, The goldfinches are back, or others like them. Implicit in this phrase is that some goldfinches are not back. They're dead. Others like them have come. Nature repeats herself, or almost does. This almost opens to a melancholy that lingers alongside the comfort and reassurance of the perennial return of the flowers and birds. It is included, in it is included the choking acknowledgement that some return and carry on while others fall behind and die. In the plaintive, simple meaning of the word itself, almost, most, but not all, and its very sound, the two descending syllables, we hear a self-contained falling off, almost. In the scheme of the natural world, the casualness of death is noted. This resonates with lines from Lowell's late poem called Obit, 
literally from the Latin, he dies. Before the final coming to rest comes the rest of all transcendence in a mode of being, hushing all becoming. Bishop's philosophical bent is pronounced in her lines and her withholding as a poet, how she actually feels is only implied, not stated, brings us back to her idea of the size of our abidance, the little we get for free, the not much she accounts for. The poet can really say very little, but she can suggest a good deal. While in the opening lines, the rigging of the schooner, a mile off, puts the intruding presence of mankind far away, the ensuing description of the island and its topography is clinical, but not impersonal. The I, who is Bishop, pops up here and there. Then the address shifts to you, to Lowell, to whom she's speaking. And yet, in the middle of the poem, she writes about one of the islands. This month, our favorite one is full of flowers. Who is the other presence that causes a change from I and you in the singular to the plural our? Cannot be Lowell. He has for several months past been in a place where there are no favorites. No, the reference is to a woman, to Alice Methfessel, who was Bishop's amanuensis and beloved in her late years, who shared the house with her on North Haven. Her presence is whispered here, slipped in under the radar. Bishop was a woman fiercely defended against making public what she had felt to be beyond the scope of poetry, the private and personal life of the poet. And Bishop, who rebuffed Adrienne Rich's invitation to be seen as a woman poet, or to align herself with feminist literary critique, feared most of all being branded a lesbian poet. I believe, she wrote to fellow poet Richard Howard, in closets, closets and more closets. In one of her late masterworks, one of her best known poems, Bishop makes a step closer towards relaxing this taboo of making herself, her feelings, the subject of a poem. Perhaps with Lowell gone, she felt a kind of release and could allow herself to latch onto the energy and skill he had so creatively summoned, drawing at once from the deep wells of both personal experience and of poetry. One art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, a joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. 
The Villanelle form is tricky and requires submission to a formal structure. Bishop both adheres to the constraints and bends them to her needs. Training her observing eye upon herself, she tallies a lifetime of losses. Knowing the specifics of Bishop's life is not required to identify with the idea of loss she proposes. The poem's universalized experience transcends the egotistical specificity so prevalent in what passes for confessional poetry. The poem is a confessional poem, and it isn't. One art had a long history of development. Bishop left 17 drafts of the poem among her papers. In its first iteration, her motivating intention was to write a poem that said, losing you is a disaster. In the ensuing process, over time, she was able to convince herself of the opposite, and the final version celebrates the power of art to accommodate a loss, to make something out of what at first appeared to be a hopelessness, a void. Bishop reveals a great deal, and yet there is still so much held back. Her affectionate, even losing you, speaks of the circumstances of the poem, when Alice had temporarily broken off with her. Bishop presents herself and wants us to go along with her as, punish, as pushing herself, write it, as far as she could possibly go. But there is so much that she leaves out. Bishop sets the wheels of disclosure in motion, but stops short of following through. Most of what she has lost is still too frightening for her to confront in any poem. The novelist and poet Kalm Toybin has expressed that the losses enumerated in the poem are those that can, that can stand mentioning, but they obscure the deeper losses that can't, that she finds too painful to summon. Bishop's great early losses, her father and her mother, make no appearance here. Though her mother's watch is mentioned, it's an emotional red herring. How insignificant is such an object compared to a lifetime of absence? Lota is nowhere categorized as a loss in this listing. Again, probably too disturbing. Sorry. <laughs> um, Bishop is adamantine in her withholding. The poet Chase Twitchell has written, it's not that the emotion is camouflaged or unacknowledged, rather it's written around as though it were each poem's center of un unspoken center of gravity. Each poem has a hole at its heart, a hollow spot. As it turns out, the poem is really even more true to Bishop's originating impulse, to the first of the 17 drafts, that in fact for her, the art of losing is impossible to master. This is the subliminal message, the message written between the lines. <coughs> Harold Bloom wrote that Bishop's poetry hovers at the edge where what is most worth saying is all but impossible to say. To the end, echoing the conclusion of Wittgenstein, Bishop was not convinced that poetry was preferable to silence. <coughs> Pulled at such a price from her, 97 poems hardly seemed modest in achievement. Her preferred tone was tentative, quiet, unassuming, but it contained within it everything that happened to her, everything she knew. Bishop died in 1979 of a brain aneurysm at the age of 68. She was cremated and her ashes were buried near her parents' remains. On her gravestone, two lines from the poem are inscribed. All the untidy activity continues. Awful, but cheerful. Thank you.
Thank you. It's a pleasure.